When you really step back and think about it, Karen Young and Taiko Drums are the perfect pairing. Aside from the obvious cultural connection and celebration, Karen has made a practice of tackling issues much larger than herself while using all of herself. An inaugural Boston Artist-in-Residence, founder and director of the Genki Spark, Karen is a cultural artist, educator, and organizer who has, lucky for us, decided to call Boston home. In our conversation, we discussed culture, identity, community, and of course creativity, as well as new and better ways of going about our work. My name is Jay Cottle, and this is Karen's Lab. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dexter's Lab. I am here with the amazing, mellow, yet inspiring and energizing Karen Young. And I'm really excited for this conversation today. Woo! <laughs> Hi, Karen. Hi, Jay. How are you? How's your, how's your week getting started? <laughs> it's good. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Um, it's a beautiful sunny day after a funny snowstorm two weeks ago. So yeah, times New England, New England, <laughs> New Englanding hard as it were. So yeah, today I'm excited to talk about a few things. Um, and right now there are kind of two seeds that come to mind um, that I think will kind of ground our conversation. The first is obviously creativity. Um, but I think with you in particular and just your work and your personal trajectory, the other thing I'm thinking about is community. Um, so before we get into all of that, in whatever way makes the most sense to you, tell me about yourself. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, um, in this context, I'm a, a performing artist. I generally call myself a cultural organizer and teaching artist and educator. Um, I, my art is the Japanese taiko drum. Mm. Um, and it's very linked to who I am. Uh, I'm fifth generation Chinese American, third generation Japanese American um, mm. from the West Coast originally. I've been in Boston for 30 years. Um, but uh, I, I didn't really call myself an artist until a few years ago, even though I've been playing and um, performing taiko drums in a variety of settings for decades. Um, and that's been a big part of my story coming out as an artist. Um, mm. You know, right out of college as a young adult, I was mostly interested in community organizing, student organizing, and came to Boston actually having started a, a, an organization called Youth on Board, which was advocating for the voice of young people mm -hmm. um, in institutions and communities, et cetera. Um, and at the same time, when I landed in Boston, I was really interested in uh, pursuing the art of taiko, taiko drumming. Mm. Um, and I had first seen taiko in college, and it was the first time I had seen uh, a people that looked like me on stage, you mm. know, making big, loud sounds, hitting, mm -hmm. hitting drums with big sticks and talking about the incarceration of Japanese Americans and talking mm. about racism and talking about um, the need for us to really be ourselves fully. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, as a 19, 20 year old, that was the first time I had seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
I'm mixed heritage, but I was also raised in a mixed family. Uh, mm. My stepmother is uh, white, and so mm. my siblings are are mixed, Chinese, Japanese, mm. and white. And I was always sometimes the adopted kid that sometimes when I was out with my stepmother, like, mm. who are you? And I grew up pretty confused about things like, you know, where I came from and uh, about my racial identity. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't, wasn't raised with, um, you know, Chinese or Japanese foods, except for when I was with my extended family, mm-hmm. um, because I didn't speak the language. My, my father, um, you know, was raised in a time on the West Coast when the Asians and Japanese were being spat on and beat up. And so mm-hmm. he really, in order to, you know, create an environment where we survived, he felt mm-hmm. like, you know, he didn't really want to pass on um, mm-hmm. this, you know. Mm-hmm. So to me, when I saw Taiko, it was... Um, about really, um, you know, saying, you know, screw all that, you know, we're actually going to reach for who we are um, and and our histories. And, um, you know, I didn't know really much about my Japanese um, grandfather's history. And that was because it was hidden, you know, because, you know, there's only so many times that, you know, you can get the word chink spray painted in the garage where you mm-hmm. you just don't, uh, the way my family dealt with it was by not really talking about it. Yeah. Um, so for me, playing Taiko is so much about um, really naming him yeah. and honoring him and his experiences. And um, I have relatives that started the third Taiko group in the United States and they were civil rights activists and peace activists and uh, my uncle started the first Asian American studies program at San Jose State. Wow. So for me, like art and history and culture and activism, I was very interlinked. Mm-hmm. Um, so although I had really pursued kind of student organizing, youth organizing, youth advocacy work, when I turned 40, I was like, okay, every decade is a great year. Every birthday is a great year to look at who you are, yep. what you're about. Mm-hmm. And I said, what happens if I like combine... I love Taiko mm. uh, and my organizing skills together. Mm. I do. And mm-hmm. at that time I was performing with Odaiko New England and it was an incredible doorway into knowing myself and my community. Mm. Um, and I decided I wanted to start an Asian women's organization called the Genki Spark. Mm. Genki means happy, healthy, full of life and energetic. And there's been nothing really like it um, here in the U.S. You know, in, in Canada, there are two other um, Asian women's groups, um, Raging Asian Women in uh, in the West and uh, Sawagi Taiko. Uh, I'm sorry, Raging Asian Women in the East and Sawagi mm. Taiko in the West. Mm. So um, it was an incredible opportunity for me to really explore kind of myself and my story and mm. um, gather Asian women um, who could also share their stories. There's something that happens if you haven't hit a drum with a big stick, <laughs> haven't hit a taiko. It happens like in your body mm. uh, when you command that space mm-hmm. and you decide to make that kind of sound mm-hmm. that you can't help but feel powerful. Mm-hmm. Um so my work is really around um, how do we bolster and make visible our full selves. And mm. um, in 2017, I applied for and um, was selected as an artist in residence um, 
by the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. I purposely wanted to work with elders. Um, I purposely wanted to work with elders of color in Boston. Mm. But the residency was really about how we can use art as a as a way to activate and mobilize and um, inspire mm. um, change around policy um, with the lens of resilience and racial equity. So that um, I applied for uh primarily after Trump got elected and I was like I can't just work in the, I can't just work in the Asian community I really mm-hmm. have to figure out how to make this work visible everywhere mm-hmm. um, so there's a lot to say but that's a little bit about my trajectory my of- pen is flying across <laughs> the page right now I'm just like taking so much in and you know I'm first gen and so um you know, I really resonate to to that piece of how much do you hold on to, how much do you learn, and um, one of the first jobs I had out of undergrad was working with um, ELL students, and um, the professor that we had partnered with, um, her specialty was um, immigration and English as a second language, and she was talking about how when most families come over, um, they're kind of faced with a choice. They can assimilate um, they can really ignore what's happening here culturally and firmly hold on to their own culture, and uh, although they're here now, or they could integrate. And hearing your, your experience, I, I find that a lot of the times when families are assimilating, it's usually to protect. They're protecting their kids. They're protecting them to really say, like, you know, we don't want you to feel othered. But what I find so much from so many friends is like, oh, I don't know our language. I don't know our food. I don't know anything that there's like this loss that then comes from that. And so watching you really reclaim that in such a powerful way Mm -hmm. um, is really interesting. And I'm wondering, you know, did that lead to more conversations in your family once you did that? Like, what what was the impact of, of this you know, reclaiming of this identity. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I always say that, you know, there's this myth of assimilation because you can't really mm-hmm. you adapt and you change and you mm-hmm. mold yourself to a situation, but you lose so much of yourself mm-hmm. and you don't ever really assimilate. assimilate. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get like, I always say that sort of being raised the way I was, you know, gave me 100% of the racism and none of the actual cultural goodies, you know? Mm. Like, it's not like the outside world perceives you as different. Right. I still right. get asked where I'm from, from. Right. You know? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> five generations later with ancestors mm-hmm. born in 1864, you know, mm-hmm. California. So, um, you know, I think a lot of my family... Uh, kind of what also gets passed down when you're not really told your history is the trauma. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my roots are in, in, in the West when mm-hmm. the Chinese were so exploited and so tossed aside, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, my, my great grandmothers lived at the time where there were, you know, the ratio of men to women were like thousands to one, you know, wow. and, so there's a lot of hurt as a result of all of that. I also feel like when you're not told your history, you're really mm-hmm. sort of, you have these like traumas, but you don't know why, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, so, you know, some of my family know what I do. Some of my, a lot of my family doesn't know what I do. And mm-hmm. it's actually only been now 
actually in this last bit of time that my, my father just turned 80 this year. Wow. Happy birthday to my father. Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> that it's been a real time of healing, actually. Mm. Um, and it's actually been me sort of bringing forth like what I know about our history, what I know mm. about our family that has actually brought us together. Mm. After 30 years of, actually 26 years since my family had been together, the pandemic actually provided an opportunity for us to say, let's try to have some kind of family Zoom. Sure. And it's been 26 years since all my cousins and my aunts got together. And wow. um, I just, you know, kind of, the initiative and said let's let's get together and mm -hmm. we actually hosted a um, family uh, trivia game mm. and part of that process meant me sort of getting trivia questions from everybody and we mm. was it my 80 year old father and his 82 year old brother and you know my 76 76 year old auntie wow. on zoom using kahoot and wow. the cousins and the mm -hmm. little one um but anyway that's a roundabout way to your around your question is that um the my they know kind of what i do but i think sort of this this has been a real opportunity for me to actually sort of build bridges and sort mm. of build from some things that have happened mm. um and you know it's been a, a a good opportunity that way but you know you you don't know you know if you're not told and they weren't told you yeah. know they that the, my my parents generation my my aunt my uncle my father were disagreeing on what they knew about the family because they weren't mm. you know mm -hmm. My dad's like, that's not where grandma was born. And my aunt shows, is like, here's a birth certificate. Uh, <laughs> came with the receipts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone having to kind of piece that together too. Yeah. It was interesting because, um, uh, you know, our, our coworker Nail um, is from South Africa. And so sometimes it's really interesting to... Um, kind of compare experiences because I find that so many of us that are here in America or some part of the diaspora um, are kind of always looking backwards, right? And we're just like, where do we come from? And where are we connected to? We're trying to find those documents that you're talking about. And I had a moment where it's like, now, like y'all have been there for eternity. Like, what is that like? And it's interesting because what it does to the psyche is they don't have that same obsession and that same way of just like, you know, document. So it's just, it's this interesting thing know. about, but because they know and they've been there, right? And so it's this interesting thing of belonging and, and that need to search and kind of detective and piece all those puzzle pieces together. That's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and then to some degree sad, because then it makes you feel like, well, why do we have to like do this kind of work to figure out who we are and, mm -hmm. and all that piece? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sort of is why, I mean, I feel like so many problems persist here is because we don't know the, the value mm -hmm. of, our, of our history. We're told once you get here, you're here, you're American, yeah. that's it, you know? Yep. And then we're not even told sort of what the history of our people, you know, in, the, in this country as well. Mm -hmm. And or that our people made huge contributions to, mm -hmm. to sort of like who we are right now mm -hmm. um, and continue to. Yeah. And then when you're told that that doesn't matter, and then, you know, and, and that's how we're all trained, then, mm -hmm. you know, huge, huge parts of us gets, get kind of 
well, you know, basically sort of cut off. Yeah. Huh. Well, here's to reclaiming and um, sticking those parts back on that got cut off. So <laughs> that's an important part of work. And so what's interesting now, though, is so there's there's always this question sometimes we ask about the purpose an artist serves and sometimes it, it, it gets into um debates around whether an artist has a responsibility to use their art to do some higher work or some higher purpose now your work you've talked a lot about how it's this intersection between cultural organizing or community or empowerment or those pieces and so it seems like your art seems very strategically and intentionally to serve a purpose. Um, one, would you agree? And two, how do you feel about those who just kind of use their art to entertain? Do you think there's a higher calling that we have to be serving with our art or can it be each of these things? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I, I like color of all kinds, you know? So mm -hmm. like, <laughs> I do feel like there can be sometimes this more sort of like high ground of this kind of art is better. I, I actually don't, I don't really love that sort of debate because mm. I feel like it separates us more. Mm. I feel like even myself, which is deeply steeped in sort of cultural organizing and community building is like, it has to come from yourself. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I just had a big um, conversation with someone about like how, you know, I've been away from my equipment, my drums, my mm. my precious, you know, instruments mm -hmm. for over a year now, and I miss them so much. And like every artist has a personal relationship, you know, with mm. their, you know, their tools, their equipment, their their brushes, their camera, mm -hmm. you know, drumsticks, <laughs> bocce. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, like the depth of work I can do is really only based on the depth that I've worked that done on myself. Mm -hmm. Both of them have to happen together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything I know about helping to facilitate someone's learning has to do with what I've learned about my mm -hmm. own. Mm -hmm. So I don't, you know, your question about entertaining I have so many mixed feelings about my own role in that because mm. you know, I'm definitely someone that gets tapped on to entertain when mm. I don't, don't really feel like that's <laughs> restaurant openings, things like mm. that. You know? mm -hmm. um, come do the small show, you know, mm. new clothing stores opening. And um, I think for me also, because, um, you know, my family did, did start the third Taiko group here, they're, you know, uh, National Endowment for the Arts recognized Heritage Fellows. Mm. I feel a deep responsibility getting mm. what the art, like roots, is in the sure. in the community. Yeah. So I won't necessarily be the one to be on TV in a in mm -hmm. a commercial. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to be the more the one that's going to be in the classroom or like you mm -hmm. know in front of an audience that would let mm -hmm. me talk about the art. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also don't. I don't hold any. You know, I, I feel like, you know, being out there and recognized um, as, as, a, as a, you know, an, an, an instrument, uh, an art form is really important as well. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some taiko drummers in the, um, in the community that say, you know, we want it to be as well known as sushi, you know, so mm -hmm. it's not really explained. Mm -hmm. And I think 
all of that kind of art needs to exist. Those kind I agree. I think, I think it has to be everything. Mm-hmm. I think there are those of us that get to, you know, have the responsibility, like you mentioned, and those of us who do get to, because personally, I love taiko drumming. Okay, I like, I, and when you talked about the power, I could only imagine because, you know, I know that like that must be vibrating through your bones. You know what I mean? Like it's a physical thing. And I'm just like, I can only imagine how it feels to be in there and, you know, um, and the silence of it and just like how hard. So I'm just like, I get it. Um, and, you know, Taiko gets me hype low key. So, but then you also brought up something. And this is a question I was going to ask. I was like, is this silly? But you brought it up. How do you rehearse? Taiko drums are very large. And mm-hmm. so I'm sure that you can't have a lot of them like in your homes. And you've been saying that it's been a year. So how, how do you rehearse? And what has that been like? Just not yeah. being, having access to that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I got a couple places where I have studios. Um, mm-hmm. One for the older and bolder group in Grove Hall. Mm-hmm. The other is actually in Brookline where you can make that kind of sound. And that's mm-hmm. where all my sort of big drums are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me at home, I've had to have a little home basement studio space where mm-hmm. I take my own classes on Zoom and practice mm-hmm. myself. And I'm literally on practice pads and, mm-hmm. you know, buckets. And I have small little practice drums that I can use that have skins, mm-hmm. um, but even the practice ones make a lot of noise, yeah. a lot of sound. Mm-hmm. So I have to think about, you know, who's around for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it hasn't been easy. I, yeah. I would say out of all the artists, when artists talk about, you know, and I've heard some of your, some of the artists speak about like producing so much and using mm-hmm. this time to really like, create and that really just hasn't been the case for me and it's such a physical art form yeah and like tapping things out on a drum pad is yeah. not the same as using your whole your body. whole body yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. so it's been a really difficult time honestly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know for an artist where they're that's their communication <laughs> mm-hmm. the way they feel the way they process the way mm-hmm. they like uh, sense things it's, it's been a real hard year mm-hmm. and now i'm sure that like there's solo taiko drumming but most of the ones i hear it's this very like orchestral type thing and so there's this community aspect to it too and i know i haven't been able to sing with my band since like february of last year so what has that been like too not only just you know the instrument but also that sense of community mm-hmm. exactly you know it has um Taiko in, in Japan, you know, that the instrument's been used used in all kinds of ways, you know, in mm-hmm. ceremonial and ritual and religion and mm-hmm. the gods, praying for rain. Yes, uh, also in theater, but the mm-hmm. ensemble aspect that you're speaking to is mm-hmm. actually really relatively new, even in Japan. Oh, wow. It was actually, um, who's credited as being sort of the grandpa of Taiko drumming is, uh, is, um, uh, Daihachi Oguchi, and mm. he actually had a jazz background. And wow. so it was after a festival where they were playing the rhythms for all the dancers to dance that he sort of, the way the story goes, is like grabbed these different drums and got his friends and said, let's see if we can play something all together. Wow. He added some fancy choreography, you know, fast forward a little bit. Now they're on, uh, they're opening for the Olympics in Japan. And wow. then it becomes, poof, you know, wow. a new way of, of really using the instruments. Mm. But here in North America, it's very much practiced in an ensemble style. Mm. And, and so a lot of groups are 
you know, around the U.S. anyway, are kind of thinking about playing outside mm -hmm. um, with masks. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, or, you know, they're not playing very much. They're on Zoom, basically following an instructor while everybody else is muted mm. um, and just trying to stay playing a little bit until mm -hmm. they open up. Mm. So. Can't lose that arm strength. Um, I know, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stay ready. Um, okay, so what does creativity mean to you? Aha, the question. The question. The question. Creativity. Um, I mean, for me, it's all about kind of this flexible intelligence and being able to mm. think outside the the box and. Mm -hmm. This was a big question. I know when I, you know, became an artist in residence and was working with City Hall, you know, mm. where folks were, you know, trying to think about like how can artists like influence city processes. Mm -hmm. And so for me, creativity. I mean, I love creativity of all kinds. You know, from dressing to, you know, performance to mm, written word. So mm -hmm. many amazing ways to be creative mm -hmm. but I really think ultimately it's about creative creativity and thought mm. um, and how you approach a problem mm. how you um a, approach you know kind of interactions with people mm -hmm. um that's where my mind goes mm. so um you know, one of the things one of the first speakers when I was part of the Boston Air Program came in to say was like how can you, you know, the creative process involves, you know, innovation at every moment, <laughs> you know, when you're putting something together and you're sort of watching something that isn't quite working, you're mm. tweaking things as, as we go. Mm -hmm. uh, and the speaker was really encouraging us to think about that when addressing like, you know, city process, community organizing. Mm. Community organizing is inherently creative. Mm. You're kind of working with a group of people. You're kind of seeing what's there, where there's strengths, where's their capacity, what, what issues are arising. You're mm -hmm. being in the moment really creative in um, thinking about how to address, um, yeah, address mm. the issue. So it's been interesting because obviously I've been asking this question for like 10 weeks now and very rarely do the artists say that creativity is artistic, right? It's, it's like what you're saying. It's a, an approach. It's an exploration. It's about instinct. Someone said it's about how you think. And so it's interesting because while maybe artists don't have that delineation between artistry and creativity, from the outside looking in, a lot of people make them synonymous that to be creative is to be the artistic person in the room. And, uh, and so I'm even thinking about, I do wonder how that came up for you doing artists in the, the, the air, the residency, because did you encounter people who were just like, you know, putting these artists in a bucket and now they're coming into here and now we have to like, how does this work? How do we do this thing now? Was that a, a challenge there? Totally. <laughs> I actually, you know, um, uh, sort of the culmination of the project for me anyway was having these elders really address this issue around um, an unsafe sidewalk, uh, unsafe, sorry, crosswalk mm. in front of the senior center. They had really 
identified street safety as one of their key issues that they wanted to take a look at. And so kind of initiated by the uh, Boston Center for uh, Youth and Families and mm -hmm. Strong and some other community um, groups, we had this big rally and event and it was great. And mm -hmm. uh, we had videographers there, photographers, and we had a, a march up the street with all the colorful signs mm -hmm. and the big older and bolder, bright, you know, t-shirts and um we we got a lot of attention and i remember one of the um city folks for folks from city hall saying karen isn't this amazing i bet you didn't think this would happen like you had no idea that this would happen and i was like i knew exactly that this would happen right this is like what <laughs> and part of i think what what was interesting was to see that like from their process they they think about like What's the goal? What's the strategy? Mm. What's the outcome? Mm. And, I, you know, the creative process doesn't really think that, you know, we know generally and we sort of go as as we go, we make some shifts and changes mm -hmm. um, and we see opportunities emerge and we sort of jump in. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, they they it was really you know hard for them to really um, see that initially. They I think they thought my. They thought my lack of a concrete answer was maybe um, not having confidence or being hesitant or mm. something, you know. And I'm always um, I'm hesitant to say exactly what's going to happen because you don't know. You don't yeah, know. Yeah, you have to respond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. But to tell people that are expecting sort of a linear process. Right. 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 That. Uh, we don't exactly know what's going to happen, but it's going to be great. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Freaks them out a little bit. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> right, you're just this flaky artist that doesn't know what right. you're doing. Right. <laughs> no. no, that's that's interesting. So I'm going to go deeper into um, a side conversation that we don't normally have here, only because of like where our pre-conversation took us. So really thinking about... I was born in Boston, left when I was six, um, and I lived in Connecticut for seven years, and then I came back. And what was interesting was every time I would come back into Boston, it was usually for like a holiday or an event or whatever. And coming from like Connecticut, Boston felt like a city, right? It felt like a, like a very big city to me. And when I came back, um, I attended the Boston Arts Academy as a theater major, and a lot of our requirements were like go see this show go do this thing and so like at eight o'clock at night you know here I am 14 from the city it's like I get to go and like go to a play and I was just like wow Boston's so cool it's like so artistically rich and it was not until I was in college that I realized that not many other people like saw Boston the way that I did and they didn't see it as this like artistically rich place uh, you know the narrative is it's a sports town it's a tourism town and so again there seemed to be like this distinction between Boston and then the arts and so especially around its perception of itself let alone how other people see it do you find that to be true and we'll keep going down this rapid hole but do you find that to be true and how have you experienced Boston as someone who is not native to Boston came but has also stayed for decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> definitely. 
I feel there's a lot of people trying to trying to think about this, but you think about Boston and you think about the history of the U.S. You know, right. you think about <laughs> you think about all the old, you know, colonial like mm-hmm. you know, uh, first colony, blah blah blah. Right. Um, and you know, I think it's only been this last period of time where I feel like there's been a lot of effort to really raise and lift up. You know. Keep, the, the cultural communities here in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, you know, the festivals, you know, I was the uh, co-director of the Brooklyn Cherry Blossom Festival for mm. a long time as well. You know, there's hundreds of festivals that happen in Boston every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also still, I also still feel like the way that Boston is perceived is kind of the center of, you don't think about the 23 neighborhoods, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Or 28, I can't remember exactly how many, but, um, and um, I think that's changing. Mm. For sure. um, I think we're not there yet at all, mm-hmm. um, especially like when you see sort of sometimes like people are enamored with the seaport, which to me is just so many like, <laughs> you know, feelings about like so much money going mm. developing um, that one particular area. Mm-hmm. But, um, which does not feel accessible or open to people of color at all. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I have stayed. Um, and I feel like part of the reason why I stayed was because I did find a home for myself. Mm. You know, I, I had to create it. Um, uh, and I feel like, you know, having myself sort of decide that I could stand shoulder to shoulder with other artists in the and in the community really has mm. helped a lot. Mm. Um, it's been a big change for me to think mm. about, about it that way, but it then opens the door for me to think about other, you know, cultural based artists that mm. like do not may also be on the outside thinking that they are not really mm-hmm. part of the artist community. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel pretty, um, I feel like right now there's, you know, really, there's initiatives like, you know, uh, RIRJ, Imagination mm-hmm. for Racial Justice. I think the lab program has been mm-hmm. great at bringing some visibility. I think your work has done a lot um, for really thinking about and reaching BIPOC artists. Um, and I think the more that there's, you know, opportunities like that, the more people start to feel like maybe they can have a home here. Mm. Um, but yeah, not in the beginning. Um, and particularly, you know, being an Asian artist in this community, mm. it, it has felt really limited. You know, often I, I'm kind of always scanning and looking around for who are the other Asian artists here. Mm. So. Do you feel like there's a, I guess a pipeline is in the way, and it sounds like the answer is no, but where do, where do you think that breakdown comes down from for folks trying to because we have this thing at Dunamis, we talk about invisible communities and we say that one thing that's really hard for us is the difference between like someone who might come in from Dunamis versus someone who might come in for a ridge or for a lab is, you know, they might say, okay, I'm an artist, I have an idea, I'm writing this grant proposal. And that's why they're going to lab or a ridge. Whereas very often our artists are just like, should I even call myself an artist? Like, am I allowed to be in these space? They're light years away from a grant. And so we say like, sometimes they're invisible because at least when you're coming to a grant, it's kind of like you're raising your hand. You're saying, I'm here, I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna do this. 
but we're kind of with the folks that are too scared to raise their hand sometimes. Yes. And so for, for those artists that you're talking about, like what are those barriers and, and how, how can we be doing a better job at reaching those folks that are, again, scared to even call themselves artists? Right. Ah, so many, there's so many like steps before you can submit that grant proposal. Right. You know, part of what I liked about Ridge is they were offering $1,000 grants. Mm. You know, it's like you got to have other opportunities. You know, I was just telling the Boston Foundation the other day, you know, some of the grants they were working on, like, start at $25,000. i am like, mm. you have to start smaller, you know, for grassroots groups, for the individual artists. Um, yeah, I think it's really going to take, you know, you need... Um, people, you need groups, you need communities to be mm. able to reach out and be seen. Mm. You know, that's one of the big things on your website. What kind of artists do you show? Mm. You know, what, where, like every single one of the, um, every single like place where you're talking about artists meets, has the challenge of showing all kinds of art right. um, and all kinds of artists, you know, and shapes, sizes, you know, ranges of color of the spectrum and, mm. and um, I think, you know, it, it, there's so many barriers, <laughs> especially when you're talking about like immigrant communities to mm. survival, you know, economic survival is mm. number one. Like what, what, what immigrant group is, what immigrant family is going to let their kid go off and be a quote, starving artist. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 100%. Which is a stereotype as well, but mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I like, you know, mass art. I like, you know, kind of what they're doing um, with their Artward Bound program um, mm -hmm. and sort of really identifying young people, you know, in Boston public schools that have, you know, this, this, this leanings towards art. Um, we need more programs like that. Yeah. For sure. I love that. Even just hearing how you said this this time. So, what I, what I just took away from that is scaffold people towards the bigger things, start smaller yeah. because yeah, those bigger things can be so intimidating and you get, you run into this idea of just like, oh, I'm not the kind of person who can apply for that kind of thing, right? And so starting smaller, but then also hearing who were the groups doing the work in that community very visibly just to create one visibility to see it I think a lot more because that's the other thing we find is our artists think it's Grammys are starving and they, they don't see a myriad of the ways that these careers take shape and can thrive. And so I think being visible, but then also really, really rooting it in a sense of community. And I don't know, Karen, I just feel it in my chest in a different way how you said it. I just, I think it's beautiful and I think it's something that's lost. And I think sometimes as arts organizations, as arts institutions, I think sometimes we're so divorced of community because we're so obsessed with trying to create our own. Mm. And I really just hearing you speak again, I'm just, I'm really thinking about what does it mean to be a part of these communities that already exist in a really like real and authentic way. And how does that happen? Like, so that's my next question. How does that happen? How do we how do we go and do that? Well, you just said an interesting word, and that's scaffolding. I think mm -hmm. that's you know that's a really important thing to think about. Is like how what do you need to have in place for people to feel like there's a pathway that's even possible? Mm -hmm. Like 
I've never applied for any arts grant because I didn't think that I was a legitimate artist, you know, mm-hmm. to even call myself a musician. It's like, right. I don't read Western notation. I don't mm-hmm. write the language in which my art happens is not in anything that sounds like <laughs> European classical mm-hmm. <laughs> trained um, notation. And uh, so, you know, again, I always you can't buy, you can't be what you can't see. So can mm. we can we stipend a few people to be ambassadors to go into communities and talk to talk to younger people to mm. to be available? Mm. You know, um, I always feel like I'm super accessible and down to earth, but because mm-hmm. of like the things I've done, people already feel intimidated. You know, mm. like mm-hmm. so like could you know what could it take to have some celebrated artists and some up and coming artists just go mm. out and talk to folks and be accessible and answer questions and encourage people and be their cheerleaders. And, um, so anyway, I think a little I'm bit. writing this down and we're going to have a separate <laughs> conversation about that later. <laughs> right. We have a Polo, Polo laureate, um, mm-hmm. in the city of Boston. Can we have a few artists ambassadors that their mm. job is to like go out and speak about what's going on in Boston around the arts? Yeah. Anyway, I, I love that a lot. Yeah. Um, so what do you say to those folks then who say that they are not creative? How do you, and even I anticipate going into these communities and getting some resistance from those folks, right? Of being like, oh, that's not us or that's not. So how do you navigate that? Yeah. What do you say to those folks? heard you talk about this <laughs> <laughs> you know is it inherent or is it relearned right i, I do nature feel like nurture mm-hmm. <laughs> we're so trained out of our creativity from day one you know mm. like this is how you draw an a this is what mm-hmm. a cat looks like and we're just so conditioned to think about what's supposed to be versus what we can what it can be mm. um you know my first inclination is to think about making some kind of like experience where they can participate and being creative, you know? Mm. So for me, it's bringing in my drums and having us all do something together, right? Mm -hmm. Just to feel what the power of community art could feel like in my world. But, um, you know, I just think to really bring in the perspective that like, it's essential. It's human, mm. you know. Um, you you made the distinction between art, artistry and creativity, and I think I'd have to think about that some more. But I do feel like, um, you know, that this is something we were born with inquisitive, curious minds that mm. want to try to, you know, put that round thing and that square thing or that, mm-hmm. you know, like paint the wall or, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were really conditioned out of that. So mm. um, how can we create, you know, experiences where people can feel something, you know, and, and experience something that's they created. Um, mm. It's different than an art, you know, where you're teaching someone a technique, you know, mm-hmm. talking about teaching someone a technique and, talking about, you know, creating and facilitating an environment where people get to create something almost by accident, you know? Um, So that's what I think about. That's beautiful. 
Um, I'm going to do this one because you said it scared you. So, haha. Uh, if you could interview a creative person, past or present, who would that person be? I'll also say people. This could be a dinner party. I'll, I'll open it up a little bit. But yeah. Oh, yeah. it could be a dinner party. Yes, it could for oh, sure be a dinner party. Gosh. Okay. Well, if it's a dinner party, there's all kinds of things you could do. Because mm-hmm. um, I thought about. I mean, and, and you know, I'm really, I am interested in folks that have kind of had a message with their work mm. um, that are more public facing versus mm-hmm. like, you know, internal, which is like I said earlier, both are important to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think about someone like, you know, Banksy, you know, like <laughs> I think about Cindy Lauper. Oh, <laughs> I think about Lynn Manuel Miranda. Mm. I think about, Folks that like did all the uh, all the branding and publicity for the Sunrise Movement, you mm. know. Um, I just think, you know, um, what was it the other group that did um, We the People? That whole We the People campaign. Mm. Um, like, what could we do? Like, if we really were to point ourselves in the direction of change, mm-hmm. you know, and we're able to sort of use all of our artistic and creative um, resources to really mobilize, like, mm-hmm. what we really do. Um, you know, every movement has artists, you know, we need artists. They need yes. to inspire and bring joy and, mm-hmm. and figure it, you know, a way to communicate a message in a way that the people can really you know, get behind. Um, mm-hmm. That's all creative and artistic people who do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I get excited about thinking about like that. So, I mean, this is interesting because to me, I hear that group and it strikes me that it's full of people who are a little bit rebellious. And then <laughs> well, I guess I could see Karen someone really rebellious, which now makes me think about it. I'm just like, yeah, Karen also like totally plays these big ass drums. I'm just like, I feel like there probably is a streak of rebelliousness, especially again, community organizing work. So now that makes me think back to your childhood. Were you rebellious as a young person? Like, what was that? Gosh, wow. That is hysterical. You picked up on that. (laughs) Um, I was underground rebellious, I think. Mm. You know, and I think part of me had to play the, you know, play the, you know, be a good kid and get in the honors role sure. you know, and do the thing to survive mm-hmm. and not be killed. Sure. <laughs> and, and sometimes that was you know, the just disapproval of your family. Mm-hmm. Um, but inside I was really, uh, really furious, actually. Mm. Furious inside about kind of feeling so trapped, you know, Mm. in a box and, um, you know, so confined. Mm. So, you know, when I did hit college and I sort of read about and learned about racism and oppression and Mm. um, ethnic studies and, you know, just society, um, it kind of a bunch of things kind of opened up for me, for sure. Mm. I was reading, you know, Black feminists, authors and bell hooks and mm. you know <laughs> I went from like growing up wanting to be a white woman to wanting to be a black woman to being mm. like okay there's a problem here <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> mm-hmm. why don't I want to be myself you know mm. and I think as I started to uncover um the those reasons that mm-hmm. I would, would make a young sort of 
Chinese Japanese candy woman feel like that, mm. uh, you know, angrier I got. Yeah. <laughs> so there might be a little rebellious. I've learned how to like, you know, um, how to do what needs to be done to mm-hmm. like get where I want to go. But mm-hmm. ultimately it's about, you know, channeling, channeling yeah. that rebelliousness and that. that hundred percent. Yeah, I could see a little bit of Karen Rage Against the Machine there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I like you it. Know. Yeah. You know, I know that music. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like it. Um, so tell me about your lab project. What are you doing for lab this year? Lab, yes. This is, uh, so Older and Boulder, the project that I started in 2017, mm-hmm. um, still going strong and managed to get a, a lot of uh, the elders on zoom so we've been meeting throughout the pandemic um but the project really is about is a is a um kind of as a show that we wanted to put together called say your age Hmm. and last year we were funded to put together an anthem um and this year we wanted to actually put together a show and so Hmm. we've invited a few artists to come in um guest artists from the community to do um writing workshops and to movement workshops and mm. it's that's that's been one part of the program that I've really really loved about this project was mm. bringing together sort of younger BIPOC artists with sort of elder black and brown mm. folks mm. and um it's been amazing and so um last year we created a few pieces this year we actually want to turn it into a full, full performance that can go that's on the amazing. road that's Ooh, take on the road. Yes. I love Those that. Those older and bolder ladies, they have dreams of being on the Ellen show. So oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I can see it happening. <laughs> okay. Our final question. If you had all the money in the world and could bend the laws of physics and you could create your own laboratory where you could do your most creative work, what would it look like? Where would oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Um, well, it'll be a multi-use space. Okay. And we need a big space because these drums are big. So mm-hmm. we need a big space. Um, and um, it needs to also have housing so that we can have artists and residents come visit from other places mm-hmm. uh, and do workshops and things like that. Mm-hmm. It needs to be open to the public so people can be part of it. We need to have food because it yes. has community gatherings. Mm-hmm. Um, we need parking. We need um, soundproofing. <laughs> really soundproof? What? Yes, I love it. <laughs> um, but we also need, it'd be great to have like, you know, the ability to like project um, images and show um, video. Um, yeah, that sounds great. And then we need it to be really colorful and okay. bright. And, and would it be like in a desert? Would it be in a jungle? Would it be near the water? Oh, wow. <gasps> it could space. be portable. Okay. <laughs> now we're thinking. There it is. Because <laughs> we want it to be accessible to the community, but we want to be able to like have that kind of beautiful nature around us. Because even though a lot of times I'm loud, when I'm out and mm-hmm. big, you need to be quiet too mm. and recharge. Mm-hmm. So I think it needs that kind of space too. Yeah. 
Well, I'm going to visit your space because um, <laughs> it sounds amazing. And thank you so much for chatting. Is there anything else you want to lift up before we go? Well, um, I'll just say one more piece around the scaffolding. Maybe it was... Um, Maybe it was obvious, but I think intergenerational spaces really need to be cultivated too. Oh yeah. Um, I love the work that you know is being done around emerging artists. I just would like to also see more um, dialogue and more connection because we need each other. Um, I certainly am excited by all these emerging artists for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to forget the folks that are you know older and seasoned and maybe. Maybe, you know, don't get as much, you know, they're not as involved yeah. um, in the community aspect. So I think we need all of that. I think that's beautiful. And it makes me think about, and it was kind of like what you mentioned with your father. I think right now I'm turning 30 this year. So as we're talking about birthdays and, and decades, I'm just like, woohoo! Um, but there's this interesting thing that's happening in my own family where, you know, my mom is sharing more and I'm hearing more stories. And it's like, those things are shifting. And I think it's a really beautiful, beautiful period, this period that we don't hear enough about, I think uh, enough about just when those walls begin to come down between the generations and we can actually begin to, to meet, um, as I wouldn't say equals, but as individuals, and we can share those stories in that way. And just, I think it's been very powerful. So even hearing you talk about that, I think um, there for sure has to be a space that's made for that sharing and for that connection, um, getting rid of all those preconceived notions about how we interact with each other and those things that that sometimes get in the way. So I feel like that's that's also really exciting to me. So thank you for looking that up. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. So everyone, uh, where can people find you, Karen? How can they find you if they want to learn more about your work and what you're doing? Uh, well, you can go to my website, um, www.karensusanyoung.com. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you again. And we'll talk soon. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Dexter's Lab is made possible by a partnership between the Boston Foundation and Dunamis. To learn more about the Boston Foundation, visit www.tbf.org. Follow on Instagram at BostonFDN and on Facebook at the Boston Foundation. You can follow Dunamis on all platforms at Dunamis Boston. That's D-U-N-A-M-I-S Boston. Or visit us at dunamisboston.org. Until next time, and thanks for listening. Stay creative.